This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. So in this special edition of the Dog and Bone podcast, my guest is Mark Ritson. He's an adjunct professor of marketing at Melbourne Business School, and he has a PhD in marketing from Lancaster University. Mark has worked globally as a private marketing consultant for many years. He's also served as the in-house professor for LVMH, the world's largest luxury group of brands like Dom Perignon, Louis Vuitton and Tag Heuer. And of course, he's best known to UK listeners for writing his weekly column on marketing and branding in Marketing Meet magazine, which he's done for over a decade. In fact, on three occasions, he's been the PPA Business Columnist of the Year. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. Now, I think you've just come from the APG conference on the subject of being a contrarian. For a contrarian like yourself, how did that go? Uh, Look, I think it went pretty well, um, but I would think that. I mean... I rarely disagree with myself at these things. Um, it was tricky because, I mean, I, one of the things I talked about, they, they themed it this year around contrarian thinking and why that's a good thing for the industry. And, of course, you know, whether I'm proving or disproving the point, I took real exception to being called a contrarian um, from the outset. Um, and I think there's a general sense that contrarians deliberately sort of, you know, zig when everyone else zags. And the point I made is that's not got anything to do with it I just think a lot of the time the industry is wrong and 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 I think I'm right a lot of people uh, in the UK know you obviously for your well-read columns and comments how do you balance the consulting with the the writing and the journalism time-wise yeah it's a good question um at the end of the day you bill by the day so you write your columns quickly Uh, (laughs) they, they, they take about an hour maybe two max, right? The key thing is finding something to write about and then knocking them out. And it's intriguing every year because if you if you draw out the list of the 10 that caused the most debate and impact and then looked at the amount of time that was spent on them, there's zero correlation between the amount of effort that goes in and the ones that hit and don't hit. But, I mean, it's very important to say that, you know, I, I get a lot of grief, especially in Australia, less so here, that I'm a lecturer and a professor and an academic and a teacher and therefore I don't really do I just instruct other people but I do about 120 130 days a year of consulting and that's my ma- that's what I consider to be my main job so I do my teaching on the side and obviously my columns aren't the main part of my right. life yeah. but it's what I think most people know me for so yeah I, I consider myself mostly to work in brand consulting in, with my own little company that's my main job who are you consulting for at the moment? Oh, at the moment I've got very interesting clients. So I've got, I'm just at the end of a relationship with a wonderful bank called Westpac, which is one of the top three banks in Oz. And we've really built new brand plans for all their group. I've, I've loved that. And we're almost at the end, I think, which is sad because I really like them, but they know what they're doing now. Um, I'm working on a new project with Foxtel, um, which is the equivalent of Sky in terms of the boxes over in Australia. I'm trying my best to find time to work for Cartier in, uh, well, globally, but out of Switzerland. I have a, an old friend who's the, one of the senior people there who wants me to do a specific job that I would love to do, but I don't know whether there's time, but I'd love to do that. 
And I have a big mission just starting with one of the big supermarkets in Australia, um, which is going to be, I think, a real fun one because it's a very important brand. But it hasn't been signed off yet, so I can't say anything. So, yeah, I like three or four clients. I like them to be in different industries. I like to work with them for two, three, four years. And then I like to make myself redundant because they don't need me anymore and I move on. And it, it, it's been working well for 10 years. It makes me a ton of dough. But it keeps me, you know, if you keep giving speeches, you end up just becoming a, I mean, you know, where are we going with the language? But it makes you into a wanker, basically, because you just, you know, you just talk shit all the time. There's lots of people just talk shit, including me. But I talk shit about stuff that I, I do, albeit not always successfully. And that's really important, I think. Now, for this version of the Dog and Bone podcast, we've actually crowdsourced a few questions from our followers oh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Shit, so can shit. I just can I just ping a few at you now? Yes, please. The first one is from uh, well-known media and advertising consultant Bob Wooten, who used to work at Isbar. Bob, yes. Yeah. He asks, short and sweet, why have you got such a downer on digital media? <laughs> uh, because the term itself makes no sense. So if you can show me a non-digital medium, I'll allow the concept. But there aren't any. I mean, Pete, you know, I say it all the time, you know, give me an example of a non-digital medium. People say, well, newspapers. Yeah, but I think he's, get, he's getting at uh, the new breed of the sort of tech, tech mm. giants and that sort of thing. I think that's what's behind this question. Oh, look, I'm not, I think, to be more pointed then, so if we call it in speech marks digital media, you know, the digital duopoly, I think my main issue is I think we overspend on it. Um, I think it has its place. I think it's a great activation tool. I think targeting is great. You certainly wouldn't not consider it for most brands. I just think we've reached a point where we're spending too much on it. And I also feel like no one else says that because they're all scared. So I think they're relatively average tools. I think, what's a good example? I mean, geez, Facebook's overstated and is a relatively useless medium a lot of the time. And if we had better measurement, we'd see that more clearly. I think digital video is a massive overstatement. Um, remember that ubiquity research that was done last year for Radio Centre? It was ranked as the number two best medium by British marketers. And ubiquity's own analysis puts it at eight or nine. So it's, just, it's not that they're not useful. My downer to Bob's point is because I just think they're overstated and everyone just, you know, it's too cool for school. Do you think marketers are actually like consumers sort of drawn across by fashion and uh, herd instinct for things that are cool at the time? Def definitely. I think at the marketing level, they don't do their research. So they look at their own behavior and their friend's behavior, which is much more digital. Mm -hmm. And they miss the fact that, you know, 85% of British people don't live in London and aren't on Twitter. And then I think at the top level, at the C-suite, you know, these old men, and they are old men, are dreadfully afraid of being shown to be old out of touch men. So they're never going to say, why don't we have another look at doing TV ads? But they are going to say, yeah, let's swing everything into, you know, nunchucks or whatever the latest social media app is, because they just are trying to position themselves. Our next question comes from a man called Rupert Howell. Rupert! Yes, one of the founders of HHCL, a hot agency at the time, and he now works for the big news brand, traditional publisher in many ways, Reach PLC, which owns uh, the Daily Sunday yeah, Mirror. Rupert's there, right. Um, a couple of questions, actually, but they're to do with one of them is to do with your consultancy job. Is what's the most damaging piece of advice you've ever given a brand? <laughs> well, there's a few to pick from, unfortunately. I would suggest it was uh, 
I work for an amazing fashion brand, luxury brand called Lueve in Spain. And it isn't a big brand here, though we, you do see it here. Um, and I really gave the new team there, the CEO and the creative director, both of whom were exceptional and not to be blamed for this, a real rocket in terms of we need to push it harder to really refresh the brand. And I really didn't, I really pushed them too far and I take responsibility for that. And I remember the CEO called me up, Lisa, and she said, you're aware that it's not going well because we did a new campaign. And it, it looked very innocuous to my eyes. And I said, yeah, I've heard, you know, we're great, we're getting notoriety. And she said, we're the number two story on the news in Spain today. And that's not good. And we got, the good news was, I think we got our, our YouTube channel went from like 600 views to about 600,000 views in a couple of days but they were like 99% negative. And I tried to spin it that it was, you know... What was happening on the video that... Well, to an English eye, not a lot. Lots of young, attractive Madridistas were walking around with Lueve bags, but it was such a jump from Lueve, which is very traditional. Oh, right. And, you know, it's more traditional than Hermes or Chanel in Spain and really is their biggest brand, that the reaction of the Spanish was, this is unacceptable and it was a proper crisis and it was mostly my fault so I think pushing a brand too early uh, into what we would call rupture rather than revitalization that was definitely my worst moment in terms of it was all me and it was all wrong right Rupert who ran a very successful agency for a number of years very successful he thinks you'll be a good arbiter of this which agencies do you most admire hmm well, I, when I grew up, which is, you know, Rupert was one of the big the big agency people. You know, the Tango campaign was really dominant and so on at that time that they were responsible for. Um, I would say I've always had a thing for big full-service planning agencies. So clearly I think you've got to go to look at BBH and, and Abbott Mead Vickers as kind of like the great, the great London shops. But I've got to be honest with you, there's just such a malaise there now. And I don't want to sound like an old fucker, but I think there isn't, there isn't that same... If you, you know, when, when Rupert was, the, you know, not that he's on a backward step now, but when he was running his agency, HHCL and, and BMP, DDB Needham and Abbott Mead, because, you know, they were stunning, stunning in their, in their, you know, the shadow they cast over the industry. I don't think it's the same now. And I would tell you that probably, uh, yeah, I mean, I forget the agency which just voted agency of the year. It's, um, oh, agency of the half century. Adam and Eve, DDB. Yeah, it was Adam and Eve, DDB. I suppose because I'm such a fan of what Field and Benetta are doing, I would swing towards Les's mob. But I, I, the, the short answer to the question is I, I'm not a big fan of any major agencies anymore. Final question from the, the punters is from a guy called Robert Ray, who used to run uh, Media Globally for PhD. Mm. It's, a, it's a more of a sort of technical question. He says, are the core principles of marketing to the demographic cohort known as millennials any different to previous generations, or have we been sucked into new ways by those who want to sell us the new? It's a bit back to the uh, yeah. quotes digital question. It is, but it, it is an important question. So I can tell you hot off the press that Deloitte, uh, that famed consulting group have recently announced that their research on media has confirmed that millennials, Generation X and Generation Y are all essentially displaying the same 
fundamental media behavior. So in answer to Mr. Ray's question, the answer is no, they're not that much different. But in a delightful twist, rather than Deloitte then concluding that perhaps demographics and the term millennials are not the best way to look at a market, they went the other way and said, this has led us to create a new group called Milexials, which consists of all of these groups combined together. So the height of nonsense. Well, I was going to say that won't stick, but you have mentioned it somewhere. Unfortunately, I have. But the, the shorter answer again is, look, millennials are slightly different because they're younger and they are certainly watching slightly less TV. They're clearly more digital. Um, and they are significantly different in some respects, but they will get older. And I firmly believe their behavior will mirror, certainly not copy, previous youth groups as they get older and more tired and more middle-aged. That's a good point, isn't it? A lot of people look at what millennials or younger people are doing and say, oh, they spend all their time on these um, social media platforms and then forget when they get kids and they've flaked out with work and the kids have run them right. They just want to sit on the sofa and watch uh, huge point. Bodyguard. It's a huge point. The first, we have good data on this. As soon as you follow a cohort, rather than treating them as being independent, and you watch them going through mid-twenties with work and then late-twenties with kids, you're absolutely right. They get exhausted, they fall on the sofa, there's two of them rather than one, and suddenly the big screen on the wall becomes the predominant source of media. Now, I don't necessarily believe that 10 years from now what is broadcast on that big screen will necessarily be the same as what we're watching now. That's a different question. But is the TV the predominant source of video um, and therefore evening media in most households? The answer in the next 15 years is without doubt, yes, definitely. Just shifting gears slightly, um, I was listening to um, something you, you, you broadcast or wrote and you talked about tribalism in marketing. Yeah. Between the sort of digital camp, and it's back to this thing again, you know, the. the the uh, duopoly digital, uh, high-tech social media type of camp and the traditional. Do you think marketing is now polarised in a way like a lot of other social debates, like we see America now under yeah. Trump and you, this country under Brexit? We're getting into sort of camps now, are we? We are, and it's not just digital traditional, because I, I think that one probably starts to break up a little bit. I think you've got it in terms of the sort of creative proponents who push creativity uber alice. Um, yeah, I, I, the example I think, I see marketing now as a warlord state really and, and, and there are all these competing camps that, that push their agenda and I think you're right, it ties up very nicely with the post-truth era which is certainly having an impact um, upon all of us. I mean even the marketing science thing, I mean I'm, I'm very sceptical about marketing science. I think the question isn't is marketing a science, it's how much science is about marketing. And again, I think the scientists now, or the evidence-based marketers, have a very non-evidence-based, uh, you know, polarization. So yeah, I think it's very hard to get up, and 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 I'm probably as bad as everyone else, but I'm very keen on the middle path. And when you're presented with binary options, looking at option three, four, five, and six, and I think that's why you know the long and the short of it. We talked about it briefly before. Binet and Fields' work is good because it's long and short, not. Long, you know, kill the short. Just explain that for Alison, what they talk about the long-term marketing and short-term. Yeah, so look, I think, and I, you know, I have no vested interest here, that the long and the short of it, which is a book and really a series of pieces of research by Les Bennett and Peter Field, who are both noted account planners and researchers, they've studied more than a thousand different campaigns using IPA effectiveness data over more than a decade. 
And I think they've produced a theory of everything, as someone was saying to me today, that we will use for the next 25 years. I'm that sure of it. It's as big as low involvement processing in the 1960s or how brands grow 10 years ago. I think it's the organizing principle behind how we'll plan brands. And I'm already doing it with brands that I work with. And essentially the theory is very simple. It says we've become too short-term focused to the detriment of long-term brand building. There's a lot of data that tells us that there should be a ratio of how much you invest. It sits approximately at 60% long, 40% short. And my twist on it is the 60% that's long is probably best served, not targeted, above the line, emotional brand building, according to what Field and Burnett say. And the 40% is more targeted, more likely to be digital, more activation. And I'm building brand plans for clients that use that approach and it seems so far to be working incredibly well. Right. No, that's a very clear explanation. Thank you. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. I was listening to, I think it was the Marketing Week uh, roundup of the, the year, and you were, you were criticising stunts, and one you called out was the Fearless Girl um, <laughs> statue in, in Wall Street, um, where the little girl's counterpointed with a great big uh, bull. I just wanted to ask you, with, with, with things like that, um, maybe the, uh, do you take into account in your analysis the global media coverage that that gets? Because from a propeller sponsor the podcast is a PR company and we always try and factor in the actual media coverage we get over and above the pure value of the stunt and that surely gets global reach and therefore it's got to be a good thing. It does but let me push that back just gently so the name of the company responsible for Fearless Girl. State Street. Very good but I don't know how many people really had that connection. So Is that necessary if it's... Totally, totally. I think, you know, the, the Fearless Girl statue image, you know, situation uh, did generate global media. I think the attachment to the sponsoring brand is everything here. And I think that lost quite a lot. And then we have the issue of the fact that State Street, very quickly afterwards, uh, were fined by the federal government for not paying women as much as men which I think is a perfect example of what a lot of balls it all is, you know? It's like, you know, Starbucks talking about community and paying no tax. You know what I mean? Like, it, State Street clearly should not have won all those effies, and they should not have been invited to Ad Week to talk about what an amazing campaign it was. They've actively paid women and people of colour less money. They're a case study in being shit, not in winning anything. Do you know what I mean? And the attention the statue created merely drew more attention to what they were doing wrong inside the company. You know? What they were doing inside the company, I accept, unacceptable. They should have been called out on it. But in terms of the quality of the piece of marketing, mm. um, what what is your issue with somebody creating a stunt that becomes internationally known just because they can't remember the, the name? No, Surely no, they'll Google who did Fearless Girl and they'll find it if they want to do business that's with That's true, and I think that's that's a fair point. My point is that you can't separate the activity of the company from the promotion that it does, right? It's undergraduate stuff that you cannot build brands from the inside out, sorry, from the outside in. You can't put up a statue and talk about uh, equality for women 
while inside the organization, your actual practices are misogynistic and sexist. Mm -hmm. And I think my point is that basic principle is sort out the gorilla before you paint the lipstick upon it. So yeah, it's not, it wasn't a failure. It deserves some credit. But if that's the work we point to as being the best of the year. Do you think in the spirit of the moment, the award should be withdrawn in the same way as um, this calls for people to lose their public honours if they've been called out for... Uh, it's not a bad thought. Look, I think it's more important that the FEs, which I'm a huge fan of, are very careful not to be tarred with the same brush as the can lions. So the can lions are a delightful frivolity for creative people. And I would argue that, that State Street should have won awards through their agency for that work because it was brilliant creative. I think it's a different question when it comes to submitting, you know, planning and effectiveness. Yeah. That's where maybe the FEs needed to take more care. But yeah, I mean, look, you know, good luck to them. It was a nice bit of work. It's still apparently a big tourist attraction. So, you know. You mentioned Cannes there. Do you, do you go to Cannes? I've you... never been to Cannes and I never will go to Cannes. Over my dead body will I go to Cannes. I've been invited now five years running and I have refused to go because I, as a young man, did enough alcohol and cocaine to last me a lifetime. <laughs> that's, the, that's the only reason. You think you, you wouldn't uh, add any value to the conversation or you don't think they deserve it? I just think anyone that comes back from Cannes is always fundamentally disappointed and feels dirty inside. You know, I think my, my official line in my column was never since Robble entered North Africa, have so many middle-aged white men been exposed to so much sunshine so quickly? You know, it's, it's kind of the last place you want to be. And I wrote a column years ago, which was the only one my editor, Russell, my beloved editor, Russell... Russell Parsons. Russell Parsons, sorry. Uh, pushed back on, because he takes a lot of shit from me and doesn't say it, he just puts it in to his immense credit. But I once sent him a column that said, here is all the important information to learn from Cannes this year and then a blank column and he sent me an email back going ha 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 you know when's your column coming in I said no that's the column and I always remember saying oh Mark Mark we can't we can't we can't do that and I said Russell it's going to be all right and I really had to for the only time convince him to put in a completely blank column <laughs> let's just talk about your column a little bit because you've you've got this positioning now as a, as a contrarian as a refusenik as an agitator clearly you revel in that yeah yeah, I mean, again, we come back to this theme of the day, which was, you know, contrarians of marketing, mavericks of marketing. And my point is, yeah, it's a title that, you know, it's like on LinkedIn where someone calls themselves a guru or a pioneer, right? You can't call yourself a contrarian. And I think the industry wants to position me as such. But I really do think, I don't set out to write things which are deliberately contradictory I just like writing about shit that I think is stupid in my opinion which obviously other people don't think is stupid and and that's fine you know and I think I mean the other thing is I'm I'm I am I've always been very sensitive to how useless columnists are the great Craig Smith recruited me to marketing magazine about fuck, 20 years ago I guess and he asked me I remember we went for lunch at the mark which was a restaurant up the road from here in London and Craig said to me, um, which columnist do you read in marketing? I said, I'm not reading any columnists in marketing. They're useless, you know. What a load of crap, you know. And I meant it. And, and, and I think to some degree I've been part of the change in that, that at the time if you read a marketing columnist in, you know, 2000, there were columns like why listening to customers is good and, you know, 
why brands need to make a difference. And it was just like, my God, who are these people? I, mean, I won't name any names unless you ask me to. But they were so boring. It was like, for God's sake, you know? And so when, I, when he hired me, I said to him at the time, I'm going to make your life so fucking miserable because people will ring you up and want you to fire me. And he sort of laughed and I said that, otherwise I'm not doing my job. And so that's the one deliberate part of it that if I don't get a real incident where someone really takes offence, I will sort of have a word with myself and say, look, go a bit a bit harder. But everyone else is now doing it too. And I'm not saying they're copying, but there's a much more critical environment around us now. But yeah, I do like to occasionally not go too soft. I never write about clients because for obvious reasons you could you know you could hurt the client your or, clients do you mean or yeah once i start working with a client then i i can't write again about them um so if you're listening brands of the world and you don't want to be targeted now's the time to call um but yeah does, other, can i ask you does, yeah. does your do your readers know that do your readers know who you work for and therefore who you're treading on eggshells when writing about because surely they deserve to know who's not going to get a slating just yeah that's fair them. i mean i'm pretty open about the, my client list i mean it's not as if you know it's a relatively small list at any one time but yeah yeah i'm pretty i, I can't write about them right i have an nda and also you know i, I think the minute oh, there's been a couple of times someone's asked me to write something and i've said look i can't because i'm I'm involved in that, you know, and you, you really are in trouble. Yeah. So it's more sort of not, I think it's to protect from writing positive stuff that you could later, it's quite serious. I write for a newspaper in Australia and you can get into quite a lot of trouble because it's a serious newspaper. So I've learned from the start, you know. Right. But other than that, yeah, go really hard. Don't make it personal. That's the only other thing. So I try awfully hard to be um, about brands and stupid decisions, but not the people behind them. Okay. Yes. I haven't, I think I've always succeeded in that, but for the most part. And I do have good relationships, I think, with people that understand that and, and give me the same shit back, but understand it's business, you know. I don't think it needs to be personal. Do you see yourself as a brand? It's a good question. <clears throat> I'm really opposed to personal branding. I get asked all the time, particularly by my MBA students, you know, what, you know, can you, are you going to include personal branding in the course? And I'm very uncomfortable taking the theories of how we sell baked beans and using them on human identity. You know, there's a very reductionist approach. But I have this famous or infamous experience where I really did reach a fork in the road. About, about 15 years ago, I, I was at London Business School as a junior professor. And I was asked to do an alumni talk with a very, very famous strategy professor um, called Gary Hamill. And I did it because I wanted to meet Gary Hamill because he's a bit of a rock star. And I spent about four weeks developing this talk on brands. And when the day came, I sort of got on the stage and I waited for Gary to arrive. And there was no sign of him. So I started, you know. And I did my sort of 30 minutes on brands. There's 400 people in the room from LBS, all the alumni, you know. But it went quite well, but I couldn't work out where Gary Hamill was. And then after I'd finished, this giant fucking screen came down behind me. And Gary Hamill was beaming in his talk live from, from what I remember now to be his beach house in Malibu. And he was literally kind of in a dressing gown, buttering toast. <laughs> and I sort of sat there watching this. And it was really kind of, you know, it was, you know, I think his opening line, I can't remember now, it was something like that. People ask me all the time, scrape, 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 
about strategy. Scrape, scrape, scrape. And I remember sitting there going, oh, fucking hell, this is bollocks. This is bollocks. But I mean, my face was kind of like grinning because yeah. they were watching me. I was like, fucking hell, this is shit. I've just done 30 minutes of data. This guy's going to get slaughtered here. But as I looked out of the audience, they were all in awe of this, you know. And he was this giant head, you know, on this screen. And when I left at the end of the event, it was clear that I could have been one of the caterers, you know, they had no recollection of me at all. So I went to the, I do this a lot, I went to the pub and had about four pints. And I sat there and just thought, I just feel like I've had my ass kicked. And I thought about it and I realised what was happening is Gary Hamill was, for want of a better word, a brand. And I was not a brand. And so what Gary Hamill had done is just said his usual shit. And of course that's what they wanted. They wanted just to see Gary Hamill say his thing. And they didn't want new material, you know, like fucking Genesis. They wanted the greatest hits. And that's what he gave them. And that's what they loved. And I was there, supposedly a branding professor, delivering commodity information and failing miserably. And so I think that was the fork in the road where I thought, right, you know, I'm not going to change myself. There are certain people who grow Mohicans and, you know, wear jewellery and call themselves the XYZ of XYZ that I really don't like. And I think the only caveat to personal branding is look at the competition, look at what customers want, but don't change the company. Don't change yourself. So I took my working class, extremely rude, practical personality and said, right, that's what I'm going to be because I already am. I'm not going to hide it anymore. So I want to I make it clear I didn't, you know, I don't say fuck a lot because I'm trying to have an impact on people. I say fuck a lot because I say fuck a lot. I think if you ask people what I'm like normally, I am like that on the stage. I haven't made it, you know, a bigger version of myself. I've just been myself. And I think writing as well, my mates would tell you that's pretty much how he is, annoyingly, all the time. Have you ever wanted to kind of launch or own your own brand and become a sort of brand entrepreneur? No, I'm really, really interested in money. It's my motivating principle. So I, I don't want to make, you, make it sound like I'm superficial or materialistic. I have a really good life at home with my, my family. And, and I really, it's far more interesting than marketing or branding. But when it comes to work, I really like making very large amounts of money. So if I thought creating a brand would be the most efficient way to make more money... I think I would do it, but it doesn't appear to be. And I'm sort of, you know, I'm getting all these selfies and things now. It's very surprising to me. And I don't mind it and I don't, it doesn't turn me on either. It doesn't seem to be a route to making more cash, you know, which is what motivates me at work. But if you uh, are a really good at marketing consultancy, then you could surely think of the next Deliveroo or, or Fever Tree or something. Oh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Yeah, but I'm really making a shed load already without any cost. So one of the operating principles of my life that I've learned from others is cost is a real pain in the ass. Any idiot can generate revenue, right? And, and what I mean by that is I could, I could buy a table like this, and for radio listeners, I'm pointing to a table, um, but let's say for 500 quid, um, and then I could sell it for probably 50 quid and generate revenue. There's no skill in that. Buying this table for 500 quid and selling it for 800 quid with no other costs, that takes real skill. And so I, I operate on the basis that revenue is not that interesting to me. Employees are not interesting to me. A gross margin in the high 90th percentile is a very important thing. 
Okay. And discounting and cost and overhead are things I focus on far more. Now, to your question, if, if I were to think about an entrepreneurial venture, I mean, I've done a couple, you know, we've made mini MBA has been a big success, but, you know, yeah, it's a good one, isn't it? It's a really good one. I, I find that I'm really, and this is going to sound terrible, I'm really good at what I do in terms of for three or four days on brand strategy, I'm really useful. And then my half-life and value diminishes quickly. So I really think I've found the perfect thing for me to do to maximize both, you know, work satisfaction and money. So coming towards the end of our little chat, it's been very enjoyable, Mark. Um, let us uh, know about your own interaction with a few brands. What are, you, what are your own personal favorite brands? Oh, it's a very good question too. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh gosh, I'm going to sound very effete now, aren't I? Um, I have a real thing about Porsches. Um, I always have had. I've got a couple of Porsches, and I'm going to buy the new one when it comes out, the electric one. Although I'm really tempted. This is going to sound even fucking worse. Really tempted by a second-hand Ferrari, and that sounds like you know I'm, I'm smoking cigars all day long. A, a good second-hand Ferrari. I'm talking a five seven five Maranello. It's going to cost you 45, 50 grand. It's a hell of a car, GTA, V12. Um, I am an enormous fan of Krug Champagne. This again makes me sound like a tosser. It's a great life, Porsches, Ferraris, It really Krug sounds Champagne. much better than it is. I, I used to work for Krug. I am of the, I mean, let me give a tip to all the listeners out there. Uh, Krug is perfect, literally perfect. It is 100 out of 100. You can buy Close de Mesnil for 1,500 bucks a bottle, um, and it's perfect. You can buy Krug non-vintage for uh, 120 quid. It's also perfect. If you want to taste perfection and what luxury, whatever that means is, buy yourself a bottle of Krug non-vintage, take it home. Don't make it too cold. People make it too cold um, and drink it and you will notice how well that's made. It is something that should cost 10 times the price. Right. So I like Krug. Let's find something that betrays my, my comprehensive school origins or quick. It sounded like a tosser. Um, I, I'm, what am I... <laughs> I'm going to talk about watches. That's not a good idea. Um, I like... I like... Ooh, it's the jam of James Bond. Uh, that's my favourite jam, and I take that home with me when I go back to Australia because of the raspberry scarlet tip jam right it's out. from Essex but I remember I'll tell you why I wrote an article years ago about the real brands of James Bond oh, which right. aren't Heineken and certainly aren't Bollinger um, and one of them was this jam that in the books he puts on all of his bread another one is you know Thurston's braces um, and I talk about the genuine brands versus the you know the fakes yeah, right. Dom Perignon was one of his I worked for Dom Perignon for many years that was a real you know a real brand that was really part of his world. Tip Tree, Tip Tree Jam, that's it. And the CEO sent me this beautiful little note and it said something like, we appreciate your comments. Signed, you know, John Smith. And it was the most beautiful little card that took about three months to get to me and I thought, that's just great, that is, you know. And what, just quickly then, what media do you use when you're at home in Australia to keep in touch with European oh, yeah. marketing events? What do you tune into, besides the obvious Marketing Week? Obviously Marketing Week every morning, yes. Um, yeah, I really like Marketing Week, obviously. I'm a huge fan of Lara O'Reilly, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. I think she's very good and is often on the pace. The, generally, I like the journal very much. I'm a huge New York Times fan, and I read that religiously every day. I read the FT, but only if there's something interesting in it. Uh, and then, really, to be honest with you, it's whatever 
passes my way. It's remarkable, I have to tell you, how much I get from LinkedIn. I mean, I used it to begin with as a way of um, connecting with my students. Then I started using it to share my columns. And then increasingly, I've got to be honest, it is a great way for me to get content from others that I find interesting. So it's a very fruitful connection for me, LinkedIn. I really like it. I mean, I don't put it above the New York Times or Marketing Week, but it's a, it's a real interesting... When I get something interesting out of that, it can often lead to a paper chase, you know? Right, very good. Well, look, final question. We ask all our guests this on the Dog and Bone podcast, uh, which is usually a fun question, although we've had lots of fun already. What was your most awkward moment in a business situation? <laughs> I... <clears throat> wow. <clears throat> okay. Once I was working with LVMH, uh, we were looking for a hotel to run a training event. And LVMH is pretty posh, you know. You know, there's some pretty high hitters there, you know, and, you know, very fine brands. And it was me and my re- super, super important boss, who was the head of HR from Paris, Concetta, who's very, very famous, now retired, and quite a stern Sicilian woman. And a couple of lackeys, you know, from the team. And we were looking for hotels in and around central London. And we'd gone off on a little mission in the evening. And unbeknownst to them, we have a little we have a little place called LVMH House that we do strategy out of. And we'd been working there. And I'd run up the road because I'm, I'm a Cumbrian. I'm from Cumberland. And I'd found that there was a place selling Wobberthwaite sausage, which is proper Cumberland sausage. Which sausage, sorry? Wobberthwaite sausage. Okay. is the original best Cumberland sausage, right? Brand? It's a long story, Cumberland sausage, but it's very particular pork with spices that came in our white haven from the, from the spice trade, and so I found a place selling Wobberthwaite sausage. Quite exciting for me, so I went up there during a, a early evening break and got myself about three rungs of this Wobberthwaite Cumberland sausage, and I came back and I literally walked into the team who were about to head off because I was late getting back. So I had this sausage touching my overcoat. And we went off to look at two or three hotels around Mayfair. And I forget which one it was, but we went into one that had this really beautiful sort of polished entrance area. And as we were walking to look at the rooms, I literally slipped arse over tit and spun up in the end, landed with a huge thwack on this marble floor. And all the fucking posh hotel staff came over, you know, and everyone was helping me up. And this Wobberthwaite sausage had become dislodged from my overcoat, had squeezed itself out and was sort of trailing out along the marble floor. And it gave the impression that I'd burst open my intestines (laughs) and they were sprawled across the floor. And one of the porters was helping me up, literally said, Jesus Christ, he's fucking spun his guts out. (laughs) <laughs> and they were literally, and I had to say to them, you know, and, and my bosses were all Italian. I said, no, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's just a sausage, it's just a sausage. And I was reeling in this sausage, like, and sort of, I sort of stuffed it back in my overcoat. And nobody made mention of it for the rest of the evening, but they were really fucking perturbed by the whole incident. And I always remember, we never spoke of it again, but it was possibly the strangest and most embarrassing moment I've ever been in. Very good. Well, that definitely is a banger. Mark. We've enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much for coming on The Dog and Bone. Mark Ritson, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. Dog.